welcome back to the Indie the Podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm Molly McEnany, the host of the Indie, and this episode we're celebrating Earth Week. As a part of Santa Barbara's rich history, it's not unknown that the seaside town played a big role in the development of Earth Day after the 1969 Refugio oil disaster. In reaction to the crisis, activists created organizations and regulations on fossil fuels, offshore oil drilling, coastal hazardous waste management, water sanitation, and endangered species protection that became the foundation of our state and national environmental protections. Local outrage led to community action, and four of the Santa Barbara-based organizations launched in the early 1970s, the Community Environmental Council, Environmental Defense Center, the Environmental Studies Program at UCSB, and Get Oil Out are still around today. And research on environmental conservation and protection is only progressing throughout Santa Barbara as we face an impending climate crisis. Most recently, the Point Conception Institute at the Dangermond Preserve up in Lompoc launched as a research hub for ecological studies. Plotted on over 24,000 acres of untouched land, the Dangermond Preserve is one of the last regions fostering natural marine and land habitat areas along California's coast. Thank you so much, Dr. Reynolds and Dr. Wingrant, for joining me on the show this week. Could you please tell us a bit about your titles and your positions, and we'll get into the episode. Sure. Hi, Molly. I'm Mark, and I'm director of the Point Conception Institute and also lead scientist for the Jack and Laura Dangerman Preserve of the Nature Conservancy. Hi, Molly. Thanks for having me. I work with Mark. I'm Dr. Ray Wingrant. I am an affiliated researcher at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at UCSB. And simultaneously, I am a research fellow at the Point Conception Institute. So first, I would like to talk to you both about the mission of the Dangermont Preserve overall. Can you tell me a bit about it, what, what it means to preserve a wild coast and how the preserve has and will continue to contribute to environmental conservation projects? Sure. Um, this is a really extraordinary place right here in our backyard in Santa Barbara County. And so we all know Santa Barbara is a, is a hot spot for biodiversity, but the Dangerman Preserve at the Point Conception region actually is a, a zone of ecological convergence between Northern and Southern California. So it's an ecological crossroads. And the Dangerman Preserve um, really encapsulates a lot of the biodiversity of the county and concentrates it in this coastal land-sea connection with eight and a half miles of, of relatively pristine coastline and over 24,000 acres of sprawling uplands, freshwater systems, oak woodlands. So it's an extraordinary place and understand how it's changing in response to climate change and to construct really effective conservation strategies for meeting these challenges. So that's in, in a nutshell, the mission of the Jack and Laura Dangerment Preserve is to really protect the best of what's left in Southern California and to use it as a center for learning, a living laboratory, if you will. Now, most recently, the Point Conception Institute was opened and has been operating for about a year, as you mentioned. Now, this space will be used as an archaeological and ecological study site. Can you tell me more about the research just beginning to be conducted there and why Point Conception is one of the more unique regions in California for this kind of research? The Point Conception region and the, and the, um, the Jack and Laura Dangerman Preserve are in remarkably great shape. And so there are intact ecosystems here that have been widely impacted throughout Southern California. 
So the last best examples of some of these ecosystems and natural communities and species are found at the Jackamore Endangerment Preserve. And this is an extraordinary opportunity for science. So there are the kind of studies that can be done only on intact ecosystems uh, happening at the Jackamore Endangerment Preserve. We have an entire freshwater watershed, the Holama Creek drainage, 97% of which is contained within the preserve. And this is a remarkable opportunity for studying how freshwater ecosystems function in a wild state. Um, we know they're very badly impacted throughout the rest of Southern California. And these are places that are not only important for biodiversity, they're also important for economies and obviously for human use. So those are some of the examples of the kinds of science that is being developed as part of the Point Conception Institute's work with the Jackamore Endangerment Preserve. So this concept of preserving wild lands or even rewilding, as we've seen around other parts of Santa Barbara, rebuilding native ecosystems, how do these kinds of projects contribute not only to our understanding of what's going on around the world, but to diminishing the impacts of climate change on a more local scale? Well, knowing how climate change is manifest in natural ecosystems gives us a great window into the kinds of strategies we can use to adapt to it and to help nature help us in a changing world. And so with a 24,000 acre biodiversity hotspot that's experiencing climate change, we can monitor and anticipate and forecast how nature is going to respond and the areas in which nature can be resilient and can be part of our resilience to climate change. And we can use that information in how we adapt to our changing climate and our changing coastline. Now, Dr. Wynne Grant, you are a large carnivore ecologist with a special background in conservation biology. And I know you talk about the human con carnivore conflict in your work. Are there strategies that you are going to be developing or plan to develop at the Dangermont Preserve that will help create more symbiotic structures of living between humans and nature? How is that measurable? Oh, absolutely. Thank you for asking. So human carnivore conflict is not anything new, right? It's something that might feel new to a lot of communities because for so long, uh, many of our landscapes were devoid of large carnivores because of the way that we eliminated them from landscapes. But in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, We've had a lot of conservation work being done and having it work very well. And we're seeing more and more large carnivores show up in spaces that they evolved to live in, but they did not necessarily evolve to live there with people and cars and towns and the way that we've built these landscapes for humans. So although a lot of my work is very, very focused on the carnivore community in the Dangerman Preserve, like within the boundaries of the Dangerman Preserve, these animals are wide ranging. And so a bear or a mountain lion or a bobcat or a coyote that I might find uh, living and you know, using resources on the preserve might also be found the next day or a few days later in a whole different part of the region. And that means crossing highways. That means probably walking through someone's backyard. That means doing their best to disperse from one area to another. And although the preserve may be a site of refugia, like a safe space, basically a haven for them, they need to be able to access all these different parts of the region. Um, and they need to do so in a safe way that keeps them safe and keeps people safe. So, that's kind of what leads me to this idea of connectivity. And if you ask any conservation biologist, pretty much anywhere in the world, you know, habitat connectivity and the connectivity of safe pathways or corridors for wild animals, particularly carnivores, is the issue, right? That's what we need. 
the Dangerman Preserve is an incredible space, like Mark has been sharing with us, but it can't work as an island. And the majority of these carnivores are going to move around. In order for them to move in a way that reduces conflict with people, they had to have these safe passageways or these safe corridors. So some of the work that I'm doing and some of my students are doing are, you know, modeling the landscape and getting to understand what these corridors look like and especially where they are, the geography of them. Once we understand that, we can test like, well, how often are they being used and are they protected? Will they be around in the future? How might climate change change the locations of these corridors? And all of this information together allows us to create projects and programs and strategies that can reduce conflict with people. So we imagine in the state of California, we're going to have more people, you know, year after year. And ideally, we'll also have more of these wild animals and richer wildlife communities. And those things can exist at the same time, but it takes proper planning and practice. Definitely. And you brought up those structures. And it makes me think back to the mountain lion pass that was being discussed last year over the freeway. So what are your thoughts on the future of conservation and how willing people and legislators and leaders are willing to adapt our environment, I guess, to a more conservationist way of life in light of many climate crises around the world? You know, I will say that my view on your exact question changes. And when I was a student of conservation biology, which wasn't actually that long ago, I had this one idea. And over time, and as I've traveled, and as I've adopted different projects, you know, my view is is kind of constantly shifting. And I actually think that that is what we need in legislators and decision makers is views that are able to shift and change, whether it's new information coming in or a new location being considered or a new wildlife community or human community under consideration. There's so much that is known and is kind of the standard, right? Like we need healthy wildlife communities and healthy ecosystems in order to have healthy human communities. Like that's just, you know, unknown. But also there is so much that is nuanced about specific areas or regions or landscapes. And if there's one thing that I've really kind of settled into recently is that the history of conservation in a place makes a really big difference when we consider the future of conservation in a place. And so the history of what conservation has looked like in this region of California, you know, this part of the Central Coast, is really impacting what we think the future looks like. So for example, the Dangerman Preserve was once the home to the Santa Inez Band of Chumash Indians. And they lived in this place along with many of the wild animal species that we see now. And so the future of conservation on the Central Coast uh, you know, will not necessarily look like that, but it'll have to include humans living with embracing wild communities of, you know, and the natural world. We can't necessarily be separate. So in a lot of ways, I think the future will mimic a lot of the past in terms of of a a harmony. And that has to happen in our mindset as well. Like we're going to try to make it happen on the ground, you know, in real life, but the philosophy behind it will definitely need to be embraced. And I've been really encouraged by the people I've met, you know, the the residents, you know, in this part of the Central Coast, you know, in the Santa Barbara County area, 
most of the folks I've met are looking forward to, you know, having healthier, more resilient ecosystems, you know, to seeing the danger man preserve flourish, to knowing that large carnivores are doing really well in this area. And my gosh, that is a great place to start from. So we're really excited to be working with Ray on, on carnivore connectivity at the Dangerman Preserve and in the surrounding region. Carnivores, we know, are really important to the healthy functioning of ecosystems. This is becoming a, a really dominant theme in conservation. And some of the work that's unfolded over the last many years in the Yellowstone ecosystem really demonstrates that, that having wolves depredating on herbivores actually improves stream health and watershed health. And so we know apex predators and carnivores really have an important role in natural ecosystems and in their resilience. One of the things that's exciting about the Jackamora Dangerment Preserve is it's a place that's still so wild that carnivores hunt the beaches. And we have anecdotal information and we're developing more through our network of, of camera stations and work with Ray on understanding how carnivores really relate to predation along the coastline and the healthy functioning of our coastal ecosystems. And this is something that just isn't possible in places that are, are human dominated. Carnivores can't use these coastal environments in a lot of the rest of Southern California. So un unpacking the role of them in these natural, uh, semi-natural and uh, lightly impacted ecosystems is really an important set of information for how we think about living with carnivores and their ecosystem function going forward. And because it's untouched land, it's it's that aspect of giving insight into what kind of life without people or before people or after people will kind of look like. But now the Danger Mountain Preserve works closely with other regional and national research and science organizations, as well as the local Chumash community, as you mentioned, Dr. Wingrant, given the Danger Mountain Preserve is a cultural heritage site for California's Chumash people. But what are some of the most exciting partnerships the preserve has had in recent years? And how will the data collected at the Point Conception Institute influence and or support the research being done? around the world. We're really excited about our local partnerships. Ray mentioned we have a memorandum of understanding that um, codifies our partnership with the San Ynez Band of Chumash Indians. We also work with many, most of the local regional conservation partners who were so involved with the protection of this place and to, to which we all owe a lot of gratitude and really advocating for the protection of the Point Conception region. But we're also excited about working with a lot of our research partners. So Ray, of course, represents a lot of the work that we do with the University of California system and UC Santa Barbara in particular, the Bren School, the National Center of Ecological Analysis and Synthesis, the Marine Science Institute, Department of Anthropology, Geography, many other researchers at, at UCSB are our partners at the preserve and are leading to extraordinary new discoveries. We're also working with the Smithsonian, which has been very exciting for understanding some of the historical and cultural significance of the, of the preserve uh, with UCSB and with the San Ynez Band. We're very excited about this partnership with NASA. We're involved with a campaign right now to use state-of-the-art Earth observation on climate change of Mediterranean-type ecosystems, like the kinds that are found here in Santa Barbara County. And this is uh, really setting the table for what will be a massive Earth observation mission of NASA in the coming years, the surface biology and geology mission. We also partner with, with ESRI, which is uh, the largest provider of geographical information software in the world. And so a lot of our work is inherently spatial. 
So partnering with Esri on how we map things is, is re a really important partnership. Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, many other institutions. So the community of science has really stepped forward with, with vigor and enthusiasm and, and inspiration and excitement about this opportunity to work at a place that is so important biologically and really hasn't been surveyed at all. It's kind of like discovering an, an entirely new channel island. And I'll jump in and say, you know, I have been so privileged to be rubbing shoulders with so many of the researchers and, pe and people representing the organizations that Mark has mentioned. It's been awesome. And even more for me, you know, I work very, very closely with graduate students from the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management. So for me, probably the most important group of people I work with, you know, are, are scientists in training. And it's super rewarding to be able to be a part of their education, especially boots on the ground, you know, teaching them about, you know, how to do carnivore ecology research and watching them blossom and, you know, seeing the enthusiasm and being a part of that skill development. You know, it's very personal for me in a lot of ways. My whole life changed when I started a master's degree. You know, I really became empowered as a researcher during that time. And so being able to work with other master's level students who want to follow a similar path has been such a gift that th that being on this project has given me. And it's something that I just feel so grateful that I'm able to carry forward. This place has an incredible inspirational power. And we're really excited to be working also with Diego Ortiz, who's our environmental education program lead. And through Diego, we've reached out to um, many of the underserved communities in the, in the region regarding K-12 educational opportunities, environmental ed opportunities. And we've had about 600 students visit the preserve in the last couple of years through a partnership with a national group called Nature Bridge. So this, I think, is really important work for the preserve as we think about how do we build the next generation of environmental leaders? How do we create that inspiration that that sparked Ray, that sparked me, that sparked many of us who who work in this field? Um, because it's so it's so very important that people have this awareness and that it really only comes from personal experience. So trying to build that pipeline from K through 12 through college to um, professional, and even if you're not an environmental science professional, having this awareness is just important to all of us as, as citizens and as human beings. And Earth Day is approaching this week, and I'm delighted to be featuring the Dangermon Preserve and Point Conception Institute work on the podcast. And in light of recent climate reports, many people have begun to think more about mindfulness and awareness, as you mentioned, and their own impact on Earth. So could you both share with listeners a few of the ways that you have used resources to increase your own personal awareness of what's going on, not only in California, but around the world. So I think it's one of the hidden side benefits of working in this field is that you're exposed to a lot of what's happening globally in conservation. And it really can affect your awareness about what you, how you approach personal decisions and how personal decisions you know, relate to the things that uh, we care about in, in, in protecting the planet. I think one of the things that, that I've been struck by is how important land conservation is to climate. And so just being involved locally, regionally, nationally, globally in protecting places is an important climate strategy. And that's something that everybody can do. Wherever you are, there's probably an important project that needs champions and needs someone to get educated and, and help promote regarding land protection. 
it's it's over a quarter of, of how we're going to you know reduce our, our climate impacts is just basic land protection. So I think about that a lot. And then just, you know, I have uh, twins who are juniors in high school and just the resource intensity of raising a family, you know, has gotten us all thinking a lot about things like plastics, like travel, like trips. Uh, we just purchased an electric vehicle. We think a lot about our carbon footprint just in how we, how we live and how we work and ways we can, we can do better. There are a lot of institutional and structural things that need to be addressed. It's not all about personal decisions, but I think just increasing your awareness, getting educated on these issues can really lead to some life changes that are important to do. And some of them are not that difficult to do. Well, you know, Mark here took a lot of the words out of my mouth. And in particular, I really appreciate the way that he leaned into the bigger issues rather than the individual issues. So again, I agree completely that we as individuals and especially as consumers can make some choices that influence the health of the planet and in particular, you know, whether to perpetuate or combat climate change. But what I think the individual can do that's more important than that is to be a part of movements, to see ourselves as a part of structural change. The way that might look for many people who aren't necessarily scientists or advocates is voting, right? If it is, you know, if it is safe and accessible for you to vote, which I hope it is, there's always some type of candidate or legislation there that is pro or anti-environment. And making sure to show up in those elections and to be educated about what could perpetuate uh, climate change or, or reduce its impacts really makes a difference. Rising up together and demanding change from institutions and from systems and from industries in particular and from governments, that's what really needs to be done. And that relates very strongly to what Mark is saying about land conservation, right? So the transformation of landscapes from like healthy, thriving ecosystems to something that is very, very different from that is what's on the table in terms of how we might save this planet. You know, there's still time and there are still so many solutions to combating climate change. And an individual can make individual choices that might make their own little world a healthier, more sustainable place. But if we want that globally, then we need to work together and really see the big picture. Also, that takes a bit of unlearning, right? Because one of the things that consumer industries are trying to teach us is that it is our individual actions that is driving climate change, but it's not. It is those big machines working against us that is driving climate change. And so we are pow more powerful as a group that cares and a group that's informed. And again, that speaks so much to the environmental education that we are trying to do at the Danger Members are bringing in communities of people who will be voting you know, soon enough and will be in charge and will be in leadership in this state, in this country, in this world, making sure that they have a foundation of environmental education and understanding and health and respect makes a big difference when it comes to, you know, what we can expect from them in the future in terms of, of fixing a lot of what needs to be fixed.
Well, I'm glad you bring up solutions because I feel like most recently there's been this doomsday mentality of no no way to turn back when you think about, you know, the community versus the machine like you brought up. I think that it's great to think that, you know, on an individual level, we can only do so much, but that community is very powerful and also who we put in office is very powerful. As consumers, can we be more conscious and not support the big industries like, like the 100 largest industries that produce over 70% of the world's global emissions? Can we somehow cut back on our own consumerism to kind of detract from those companies and figure out ways to make the world, you know, transferring things to clean energy, transferring industries? It's it's a very nuanced subject as I've gone into on a couple episodes on, on the podcast, but, you know, the relationship between jobs and fossil fuels, between all of these, all of these different communities and sectors of the world. But I'm glad that you say that it's possible because I, I do think that emphasizing from scientists that there are solutions to take account of uh, will give people more hope that there is change to be had. So I really appreciate both Dr. Reynolds and Dr. Wingrant, both of you coming on the show to discuss the world, but also more closely your work at the Point Conception Institute and the Dangermond Preserve. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I think uh, we've touched on this this a bit, and it's it's a bit of a truism, but Earth Day, you know, is every day, and these issues of the environment and of the fate of the planet aren't secondary and tertiary things that we should get around to after we've fixed everything else. They're integral to how we approach making the world a better place, and I think the opportunity for folks to be inspired and to educate themselves on the issues. And there's no better antidote to the pessimism in the doomsday atmosphere than learning about what you can do and taking action. Yeah, I agree. I'll also add that one of the things that particularly sets the Point Conception Institute and the leadership of the Dangerman Preserve apart is that there's been great intention with building a diverse community of scientists and thought leaders that guide the decisions going on on the preserve and, and the science that's being done there. Um, so the role of women is you know, stronger than many of the places I've worked. The racial diversity of some of the folks, myself included, you know, in leadership here is drastically different than a lot of the other places that I've worked. Things like that make a big difference. You know, So different perspectives from different kinds of people working towards the same issues strengthen the outcomes and can accelerate how quickly we get to so many solutions. One last thing I would add uh, regarding the, the Danger Marine Preserve, and uh, it's it's a place where we still have a lot of the pieces. And, you know, I think one of the, the rules in thinking about how we design the ecosystems of the future is having these places that are that are like time capsules where we can learn from nature that's functioning with intact ecosystems and responding to the kinds of changes we're seeing um, so rapidly through climate change right now. But if you don't have those places that give you that window into the past and how um, natural ecosystems can function, your, your view is gonna be really distorted. And so these kinds of living laboratories are, are really key to the conservation strategies of now and of the future. Well, thank you again to both of you for joining me on the show this week. I am excited to be featuring the work that you're doing for Earth Day, which is coming up this week. It's on, what, Friday? So everyone, please do listen in and, and boost your awareness of what's going on, not only in Santa Barbara, but around the world. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.
Thank you, Molly. This was great. Thanks so much. Facing the worst drought in 1,200 years, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced an urgent call to action for water agencies throughout the state to use 20% less water. Even though Santa Barbara County is facing its third year of drought, the city is not expected to face any water shortages, thanks to strict conservation and planning efforts. So where does Santa Barbara's water come from, and why did the recent regulations on water not hit us that hard? Reporting from the Indy, Alexandra Goldberg has the story. Mr. Hagmark, this, this hit us with the good news. Well, Bathe us in good news. <laughs> A rough day today. We got some really great... Great uh, items to celebrate. Um, I'll do my best here. So, Mayor Rouse, Council Members, Joshua Hagmark, Water Resource Manager. And um, if there were any skeptics about climate change, uh, it's here. And um, this is clearly we've had one of the wettest Decembers on record, followed by uh, the three, one of the three driest January, February, and March. It's been really incredible. And um, on the more positive side, we have a community who is rocking conservation, and we have um, made the investments that we need to make to secure our water supplies, which is fantastic. You just heard Joshua Hagmark, Water Resources Manager for the City of Santa Barbara. Now there's no question that the drought in California is becoming more dire every year drastically impacting the way the state approaches water conservation. But luckily, Santa Barbara seems to have the water supply issue under control with community conservation efforts, initiatives from the local government, and the diversified water portfolio that allows us to, well, fill our cups. We're taking a look at the Charles Meyer desalinization plant, one of the city's water sources that accounts for roughly 30% of our current water supply. Today, we'll hear from Hagmark about how the desalinization plant is one of our hidden heroes in the water supply crisis. But first, we'll take a look at how our community is faring amid the drought. This isn't the first time we've been up against this, and we've, this community, I should say, has made some really tough decisions about what they want to do to ensure we have adequate water to meet basic health and safety. And, and that has been an investment in a diverse supply portfolio. And that isn't cheap, but that's really what is required to live here on the South Coast, where water is um, can be very volatile, the availability of it. And so we have, over the years, really diversified, really starting in the 90s, really started to move away from a strictly surface water-based um, supply to one that really reaches as far as um, Northern California and taps into the Pacific and also uh, realizes reuse of our recycled water. And, and not to be lost in it has also been a huge focus on water conservation, which we see as a form of water supply, which is demand reduction. Great, thank you for that. And amid the worsening drought in California, the California Department of Water Resources cut the state water deliveries to only 5% of the initial allotted amounts requested by the city. And according to the Water Supply and Services Manager, Catherine Taylor, this is already a 5% bonus, 5% more than what the city was planning to receive in the first place. Can you tell me about why city officials in Santa Barbara are not as concerned about shortages given the recent state mandate? 
Yeah, again, that goes back to having a diverse supply mix. When we were putting together, we do three-year projections. Um, every year, we'll do another three-year projections. And, and with that, we had assumed at this point that we would be getting a 0% allocation just based on last year's rainfall and kind of the reservoir levels. We knew if things didn't really turn around significantly, uh, we were unlikely to get any. So to that end, getting 5% is, you know, certainly would have loved to see more, but that is more than we had planned for. And the upside means that there's water moving around in the state water system, which also offers us an opportunity to go out and buy water from maybe an agency or a user who may not need that full allocation. Here at the Indy, we want to unveil the diverse and generally unknown water sources in the city. My focus today is the Charles Meyer desalinization plant that produces roughly 30% of the city's water demand. Can you tell me about what is desalinization and how does this plant operate? Yeah, so the city initially built the Charles E. Meyer desalination plant in 1991. And fortunately, we also went on to get the permits to operate that facility, the permanent facility. And so in 2014, when this most recent drought had uh, was showing its resiliency, we took steps to reactivate the desalination plant. And in that process, we modernized it. We put in best available screening technology out in the ocean. And we also implemented some uh, energy efficiency parts that would improve how we operate and the electricity that's used. But we're very fortunate that we had permits to reactivate the plant because usually some of the plants that have uh, permits right now take 10 to 15 years to get a permit to operate a desalination plant. Water comes in from about a half mile offshore. We have pumps uh, that uh, not too far from the Industerns Wharf that actually pump water onshore. It is treated in many ways like surface water that we get from Lake Kachuma. We use coagulants to get particles in the water to stick together, and then they're filtered out by running it through a media of gravel and sand and anthracite. From there is when the magic happens, and that's when this water, which at this point should be just salt water, um, goes through the reverse osmosis membranes at about 900 psi, and that's the big energy user here. So. You're taking this water and you're forcing it through these very, very small microscopic holes that salt cannot go through. For every gallon of water that passes through there, half a gallon will go to the ocean, go back to the ocean, and then you'll produce half a gallon of what's called permeate. That permeate is, uh, in essence, pure, pure water. It has no minerals in it. It's actually not all that good for you. It's like pure rainwater in that sense. And what we do is go about adding minerals back to that water to make it healthy to consume and also safe for our pipes. With that brine, so that's how the, the, the desalinated water is made. We also end up with this brine. The brine is basically twice as salty as the ocean at this point because we removed half of the water. And so that brine mixes with the city's treated wastewater. Um, it ends up being a nice collaboration between the two because the time the water gets back out, uh, it's released about a mile and a half offshore. 
that water is basically returned to a similar brine content to what the ocean is. Um, and we have, uh, we do extensive testing offshore. We've got years and years, I should say decades of data on the impacts of the city's wastewater outfall. So we know exactly what kind of benthic life is living out there and the health of that benthic life. And we continue to monitor that on an annual basis. And you did mention that the desalinization plant went through this modernization process, and I'm sure that was quite expensive. We saw the plant first constructed in 1992, then the drought got better and the plant went out of commission for a while until 2017 when it was reconstructed again. Now it's producing, like we said before, about 30% of the city's water demand. Can you tell me about the pros and cons of desalinization? Why has the city become more reliant on this plant after such an inconsistent history? Well, I, I think if anybody was uncertain that climate change was here, it is here and it's only going to get worse. And what we anticipate and what the experts are saying is we're going to see more extremes, uh, extreme dry periods, which we have. I mean, last time Kachuma spilled was in 2011. That is unheard of for that reservoir to go that long without spilling. It typically used to spill every three years, but we're also going to see wetter wet times. So we're going to see these extreme rain events. Um, the Montecito debris flow was a good example of just a deluge that came down. Um, that is our future. And so uh, knowing that the city council and uh, the city's water commission have made taken steps to make desal a more permanent part of our water supply. Um, it does require more energy than our local surface water. And with that comes a higher cost. Um, but I think it makes sense as a portion of our supply. And recognizing that, um, I like to use the analogy of someone's stock portfolio that they're saving for retirement. They have risky stocks. Yeah, you know, that might be your local supplies, which are really variable. And then you might have your really safe bonds. Desal is like your bonds. You're, you're, you know it's going to be there year over year. It can provide that basic health and safety water that your community is going to need no matter what. And so um, it makes sense financially uh, as a percentage of your total water supply. And I guess I'm curious about the desal plant. What's it like? Well, and you're not the only one. Um, unfortunately, uh, before the pandemic, we were offering public tours and people could sign up online for that. But we've since um, stopped that as well as tours of our other treatment facilities, which are also really great. And we hope to restart that again, because I think that's a great way to connect with our community. Um, I do have to say the tour of the desal plant is a little less glamorous than it may sound. There's a lot of piping <laughs> and pump, seat, pump going on, not a lot of visuals, not a lot of um, places to see the water. It's just not a lot to see. It's a, an elaborate mix of pipes. Um, and in fact, most people probably drive by it every day. It's located right down on Yananali, pinched between the 101 and Yananali, right across from our wastewater treatment plant. So most people don't realize they drive by it and uh, it's just right there, but it's, it's not a whole lot to see, but it mostly looks like an industrial facility. 
right? Like an abyss of engineering. Yes. Um, on a similar note, our city does have a very diverse water portfolio. Some probably, arguably more beautiful like Lake Kashuma or the Gibraltar Reservoir. Uh, we also have recycled water, infiltration from the Mission Tunnel, and of course the desal plant. But why would you say the ocean desal plant is uh, one of the more expensive water conservation efforts? It's really the energy costs for that facility that drive the cost. We spend about, let's see, about $1,400 an acre foot for that water, where water from Kachuma or Gibraltar that flows by gravity uh, to the city costs around $400 an acre foot. Um, so there's a big cost differential there, but as I'd mentioned earlier, when you really average it out over the total city supply, it makes the, the average treated water somewhere in the seven to $800 an acre foot. So not unreasonable. We currently are paying around $1,200 an acre foot for recycled water, which can only be used at for landscaping purposes. So to kind of give you a perspective, we pay a premium for that. Um, and that's why we really focus on a lot of conservation efforts with our community. Our, our community is doing fantastic. They really are. We've you know, a lot of communities after in 2017, 2018 started to see rebounding water usage. We have not seen that. Our community has really kept kept it up. We're not living in a place that has cactuses and rock front yards either. We found a way, I think, to live with more natives moving away from turf grass and finding a way to, to live with a lot of plants that don't need as much water uh, and, and are more suitable for this climate. And, it, and it's meant a, a big significant reduction. In fact, we use the same amount of water now that we did in the 1950s when the population of Santa Barbara was about half of what it is today. And so it's really remarkable to see how the community has changed without really sacrificing. I don't feel like we've really sacrificed the look and feel of the community by using less water. Yeah, that's amazing. And tell me a little bit about the community. Is there any incentives for this water conservation effort? Or would you say our community is just uniquely prioritizing a green environment and water conservation? I think it's multiple there. We do have some incentive programs. I can list them all right now. If you go to our website, we've got lots of rebates for washers and uh, replacing your uh turf. So there are a lot of uh, rebates on our website um, for that, that you can apply for. But I think the price of water also helps. I mean, when you're looking at, should I tear out my lawn, it's going to cost me, you know, a thousand dollars to tear out my lawn, but I could save a thousand dollars a year in water. It really pencils out to make that investment to remove and change out your landscaping. And I think that's really important. And so having that incentive to go do that, it's really made, I think, a difference for a lot of people because it makes economic sense to do something different. Great. Thank you for that. And amid all this beauty and change and hope within the community, we do have to keep focused on the bigger picture, which is climate change. And the city did declare this state one drought condition and anticipates moving towards stage two in the coming months. What do these terms specify for the city's water emergency? Well, that's a great question. We, we are looking good on water for the next three years, being prepared that this drought could go on much longer. 
we will be discussing with, with Water Commission and City Council whether or not to move to the next stage of drought awareness. We're also taking a look at what the state's gonna, I think the state's gonna be coming out with some mandatory re requirements, uh, which are gonna be challenging for us in the sense that we're already a pretty lean water using community. So it's not as easy as some communities who have for whatever reason, significant uh, water usage. So it's gonna be tough for us, but we've done it before, we'll do it again. I have uh, utmost respect for the folks in this community. Anytime we ask for additional water conservation, people step up to the plate. And in the near future, do you see the desalinization plant contributing to a greater percentage of the water that our city uses, or do you think it'll hang around 30%? That is a great question. I, I would, my preference is to keep it at 30%. I think that's a sweet spot for the city, but we do have our permits allow us to go up to almost 100%. Um, I say that because um, we have that opportunity, I think, to play a larger regional role uh, along the whole South Coast because I'm obviously just representing the city of Santa Barbara, but we have an opportunity to utilize this facility to potentially help uh, play a role in stabilizing water on the entire South Coast. As much as I, I don't want to expand the plant, we stand by ready if, if um, the climactic conditions continue to push that need. And before we wrap up our conversation, is there anything else you would like to add? We really need to continue to focus on preparing for climate change. It is, it is not, does not appear likely on the national level or global level that we are going to be able to slow it down anytime soon. And therefore it means we need to start preparing for it. And it, it comes with some, some challenging issues. And we know sea, sea level rise is projected to, to hit us as well. But right now it is it is droughts, it is water shortages, and the desal plant is one way. We we also see an expanded use of recycled water being another thing in the future that will also continue to diversify the city's supply mixes. But um, yeah, lots of tough decisions ahead, and I'm really fortunate that we have such an engaged community to have those conversations with. I mean, so fortunate. The city council has been tremendous leaders on this, on climate change and uh, really having the tough conversation. So I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Hagmark and sharing this story with our community. Reporting for the Indy, I'm Alexandra Goldberg. Once again, I'm Molly McEnany, host of the Indy. Tune in next week for another episode. 